0: BLOB TALK RADIO
1: dot biz at uh vlog Talk radio, my name is Stacy Webb, and um I am a publisher and a writer and an author and descendant of um uh the blood Indian groups um of early american history um i I own a publishing company, of course, as you know, back in Tom dot biz where we publish books um on the u s color line um and so we have um i took it over about 2 years ago and and we have um decided to continue um with our our history of the US color line but we want to base it on the families who were gen- genealogically attached to these these different groups who were um who have in the past been Uh, documented and uh, studied over many years Um, in fact most of our our families go back to Jamestown in some regards and uh, as a tribal people we migrated um, as far as um, to um, present-day Wyoming and and the Canadian border and places like that Uh, we have recently found out or made uh, biological connections To uh, the group of um, Chief Joseph out in Oregon uh, Who had come from the Bridger people at Fort Bridger, Wyoming Which is another story But um, I would like to welcome you today And thank you for joining us We have a fabulous New Year's Day episode uh, ready for you today We have invited, um, of course, uh, Scott See, well, and he's been with us here at blog Talk before he has a a book with his cousin Stephen pony Hill, who is also also an author with back in time uh called North Florida Indians, and we have just in December released his newest book called Bells of the Creek Nation. It's a fabulous uh book of the history um sacred you know, ceremonial grounds uh, of the people and the families attached to those uh, who are biologically related to many, many of us, including the Hill and the Doyle and Cloud and Barber and Bennett and Islands, Conyers, Callahan, Hamels, Jackson, Marshall, Mitchell, the McIntosh, the Bryant, the McGee, the Coolidge, the Taylor, the Revels, the Robisons, the Thomas, the Scots, and the Samsons, and, and so many more. We have just recently today added the index for Bells of the Creek Nation to our backintime.biz, and that would be www.backintime.biz, uh, website, and, and you can check that index out. Um, I'm going to go ahead and open the mic and welcome Scott. Uh, he's an old hand a little bit at this, and he's going to talk to us. Uh, welcome, Scott, and thank you for joining us today. Uh, can you hear me? Is your mic open?
2: Yes, ma'am. I can hear you just fine, Stacy. Can you Fabulous. hear
1: me? I certainly can. Thank you for joining us today again Scott and and congratulations once again brother on your Bells of the Creek Nation. What a fabulous addition to back in time and to documenting the the history and the genealogy of our mixed blood ancestors and relatives and to further uh you know advocate for our organization and so you know the organization of these people who have been so spread out and disparated across you know we we just didn't know we were related to each other and until uh you know books like yours has come out and we're connecting dots and and we sure appreciate it um it was a long book in the making
2: yeah it was definitely Uh, that's true.
1: Well, was it a, a pure labor of love for you over the last what five or six years?
2: Yeah, yeah, it's kind of taken about that long to, to kind of pull together different threads that, in in the previous book that that me and Pony Hill worked on, the, the Indians of North Florida, that's a uh, back in time uh, title. Uh, I I I was thinking of other aspects as far as you know we. We kind of in that book went through the legal and social history of our community in North Florida, which is predominantly of, of Catawba and Lumbee descent, the Scotts Ferry and Scott Town and Woods communities. And yet, there's particular families that are part of that community historically that had ties to other other tribes, like Creek Nation, like. Um, the Nanzamond, the Pamunkey, there's individual families that just kind of came in. And and besides the, the, the main population of of migrants out of the Carolinas in the 1840s, that the Scott family and the Porter family and a dozen others that came together, the Oxendines and Jacobses, you had these individual families from other tribes that kind of got associated with them and in time intermarried. And so you'll have, you know, a, 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 when you follow the lines on back for particular families, you find that, you know, here's here's an Indian from another tribe or, you know, such such as that. And that's not uncommon. You you have that same story in most tribes in my travels to where a community will be predominantly a tribal ancestry, but you have these lines of descent from other, other groups. And everywhere I've ever been across this country in the conversations with elders and people, it's a very common story. And I just thought, you know, let me take one of these threads, that of the Hill family and follow it back and kind of uh, look at the kind of the ins and outs of, of that family's uh, journey. And I wanted to take a different perspective than we did in Indians of North Florida, where we took an entire community and followed it across time, beginning in, you know, the earliest of times and following down till till pretty much the end of segregation and in doing that, you know it's kind of a legal and a social history of an entire community. I wanted to take one family and follow descendants of that family as a family was fractured by the events of of history and see where the descendants lead so some i I took one event, which was an eighteen twenty nine marriage at Fort Mitchell Creek Nation, and three. Girls from the Doyle family, that the daughters of Indian countrymen Nimrod Doyle, Nancy, Sarah, and Amanda Doyle, and I followed their lives and their descendants' lives. Now, Nancy and Sarah were full sisters in the American understanding of it, in that they had the same mother and the same father. But in Creek culture, people are related to their mom in in a in a, a way very different from our contemporary culture, because they belong to the clan. And their mother's clan is their clan So they had a different mother, Nancy and Sarah Than, than the other one, Amanda And uh, it just so happened that With the events of the removal Which was only a couple of years away From, the, from the, the event that I use As the real starting point of the book Which was the marriage of these three girls On the same day Using a very interesting article From the Cherokee Phoenix Which was the national newspaper of Cherokee Nation At that time And I used four other local uh, state of Georgia newspaper references as well about this event and kind of uh, uh, followed those girls' lives after that event. They got married all on the same day, big wedding, big article about how many people came, dignitaries from Creek Nation, dignitaries from the American military. You know, these mixed-blood families at that time had great, Way in political power in in Creek Nation, Cherokee Nation, Choctaw Nation, so you had large Families like the Van family um, The Ross family In Cherokee Nation and Creek Nation had its equivalent In in influential mixed blood Families, uh, Choctaws Most of your your larger nations like Chickasaw, you, you had these large families And a lot of times they were interrelated Even across tribal lines where you'll find Kinship between like the Van family of Cherokee Nation and the Mackintosh family of Creek Nation, uh, these kind of things. So those those girls were all from a pretty, you know, influential mover and shaker of the times, you might say, uh, Nimrod Doyle, who was an Indian countryman. Indian countrymen were, were non-Indians. You know, usually they were a European or maybe a Euro-American, and they'd marry into the nation and live their lives, for some of them, in the nation. Uh, and for others, it would just be a portion of their life. They may ha- might have an Indian wife. They might have two Indian wives. They might have a non-Indian wife back in Boston or Charleston or somewhere. But uh, they really played a big role in the unfolding of events for tribes like Creek Nation, uh, Cherokee Nation. You know, so I follow these girls' lives. I follow their defendants' lives across generations. You know.
1: Yeah. and I love and the fact that uh when we were in the midst of a final review of the book, I realized that when you spoke of this this legal act in Texas, uh realized that you were speaking about the Ashworth Act.
2: Right. Which right.
1: was a, a, a right and that was that was like the, the censure on the deal Because uh, we were quite unable to hook up our doyle Dial family explicitly through DNA, but uh, through a paper trail, you know, we may uh, add to that sooner or later. But uh, there was an act in Texas uh, after the Texas Revolution and after Texas became part of the Union of the United States they required they brought in their laws and they required that any free people of color must leave the state on pain of death or being sold into slavery. And so there was yeah. a special act called the Ashworth Act and that was for some of our redbone families and of course my family was named in it and your family was named in it. And so nice. there is a, a, a quite a big cross over there in the Nakadoches Uh, Louisiana borderland region there uh, In Texas and so we were were just I I was just ecstatic to make that connection and uh, I'm sure there's so many more that's going to be made From this you know from the islands family from the hill from the Doyle, And Mm -hmm. so I'm encouraged but um, It's just a fabulously interesting book and uh, Lars Adams is with us today And um, I'm going to open his mic And let him give us uh, I'm going to introduce him quickly And let him give us uh, A little rundown On his thoughts of Bills of the Creek Nation Because I, I think we all agree That it is a, a Groundbreaking publication For us as far as mixed blood people go And Lars is fixing to Also introduce another book and then whenever we get time and, uh, and I want to speak about your new book as well. You have a new book planned. Um and tell us tell us quickly about that and then we'll introduce Lars Adams, and we'll talk about Belt of the Creek Nation again.
2: Okay, yeah, I have one that where it has the working title of The Eastern Creek that uh kind of focuses more on the spiritual the the, the the practice of spirituality among Eastern Creek people. If people don't know, there is an unremoved population of Creek people here in the South, epicenter being Atmore, Alabama, the Porch Creek Indian Reservation, and in the surrounding area, the parts of the Panhandle of Florida, South Georgia, you have families of more or less Creek ancestry, with, with Atmore being the epicenter. The reservation has two or three thousand people living there who are who are very Creek Indian and as you go out, you have other creek families you know further away from it but uh in in this the Eastern Creek Indians manuscript that that we're you know developing up and'll be out soon, I just look at the how the spiritual practices over the last several generations basically since since uh desegregation there there's been three generations four generations that have become uh during segregation the battle was to not be pushed over the color line and lose your Native American identity and be, you know, pushed into a quote unquote colored identity, a a African American identity. And a lot of people in the South had the same struggle. Well, after desegregation occurred, there was no longer that pressure. So a lot of the communities here in the South had to redefine how they define themselves. It was no longer as easy as somebody's pushing you into a corner that makes you who you are. You had to internally be motivated. And groups like the Eastern Creek, predominantly band, showed a lot of leadership in in asserting themselves and saying, we have a vision for our own destiny, our own self-determination is important. And asserting political, social, legal, other, you know, forms of, Resistance and struggle, and eventually leading to federal recognition in the mid 1980s for Port span. But also before that, the Indian Claims Commission's uh, Creek Indian Docket uh, struggle, where you know many thousands of Creek people filed to say, you know, we we expect the United States government to make you know make good that you took land during the removal. You knew it wasn't right. At least you know show that it was not something that people today think was a fair thing. And the Indian Claims Commission made a monetary Compensation to tens of thousands of Creek people over that Well, I haven't seen very many works That looked at the, the spirituality that's kind of guided The last several generations' struggle in that And so it's partially a political history And partially a, a spiritual history Of the of the return of the ceremonial grounds As a important part of Eastern Creek identity and culture And so that's really what this upcoming manuscript focuses on and a little further out we have a, a work that we're working on which is work entitled Uh The Cherokee Paradox, where we're gonna look at genetics and Native American identity and racial and cultural identity and how they all interplay in the in the in the era of genetics. So that's kind of what's on the horizon that's still being worked on. Absolutely. Fabulous. I, I'm
1: excited about your new publishings and you have several in the works and um, so we're we're glad to see those coming and Lars Adams is is writing a book also as well. Um it should be out in a few months, I would say. Um uh Margot's book probably will be before Lars's book, uh, Hill Town to But um Lars also wrote a uh um back matter for Bells of the Creek Nation. And he also wrote a review at Amazon for the book. And, and so I think he was thrilled as, as well. And I'm going to go ahead and open his mic. And I don't know if you guys have met each other, but um, uh, introducing to you, Scott, uh, Lars Adams um, is joining us. Uh, hello, Lars. Are you able to uh, hear us?
0: I can hear you. Can you hear me?
1: Absolutely.
0: Hello? In. There he is.
1: Yes. Yes. We can hear you. There's a slight delay. Um, so if you'll just kind of give a little pause there, uh, for a response, um, go ahead, Lars and introduce yourself because you're kind of, um, an all around guy. You are a writer and an author and you are also a, an independent researcher like Scott and myself. And, um, Tell us about uh your your work thus far and and your coming book and and how you felt about Bells of the Creek nation. We'll just let you speak about you know your things your new things
0: okay well um yeah, I'm an independent researcher author writer um my um main focus of research is in um mid atlantic uh Native American communities. <clears throat> so um, what that stems from um uh, is uh family history you know i'm i'm um um of partial Native American ancestry, and in researching my own family roots um which is from um the Choctaw and Nasamon tribes um I just became very very interested in the history on the whole, and it really started my career as a as a historian um, with my new book um I was looking into originally. Um, a few small expeditions that were sent south into North Carolina um, during the war. And um reason being because that, that period of time, the 1640s, was very poorly documented among North Carolina tribes, and I wanted to shed a little bit more light on it. But as I researched these expeditions more and more, really became fully aware of how little has been written on the Third Anglo Palaton War overall and so I began to research the entire conflict in earnest and um <clears throat> um right now what we're gonna see hopefully is gonna be the fruition of um, all of that. Took a few years but um it's in the past um this conflict really has received no more than two or three paragraphs of um, attention, you know, in, 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 most, um, um, books that you'll find on it. Um, so I just, I wanted to fully flesh it out and give all the details and all the credit, um, to the individuals in the conflicts, like, um, chief of um, and get as much of a native perspective as possible, which is always very difficult as, you know, I'm sure everyone on the line here knows is, um, um, everything is written, you know, from a slanted European perspective. So, um, I tried to do my best to get anthropological evidence, um, uh, modern native people involved in the project. Um, I've had, um, um, several anthropologists working with me, Dr. Buck Woodard from college of William and Mary, Dr. Helen Roundtree recently joined, um, to, um, try to lend as much of a perspective to native eyes as well, as well as I've had contact with, um, people from the Chickahominy tribe, from the Choctaw Nation, um, and others, just to try to tr- try to get as much of a Native perspective as possible, to try to get it more balanced to both sides. Um, <clears throat> as far as my, my other works, um, I have done several um, essays that have been published in peer-reviewed journals in regards to um, North Carolina Native communities, the histories. I did um um, a book on the, the expeditions that I mentioned, I did or not a book, I did an um, article on that that was published in Native South from the University of Nebraska Press, and um, from the North Carolina Historical Review, I've done um, a history on the Chowan River War of 1676, Um I'm, I'm just going to continue to crank those kind of things out um, for everything in the region.
2: Yes, yes, and
1: that right. that was a struggle uh, that that took place. And tell, give us a little detail on the years and the tribes that were. Basic, would would you basically uh, classify these
0: tribes as Algonquin? Absolutely. So, um, uh yeah, most of. The tribes that I have um, researched are the Algonquins, the uh, southern Algonquins that range from the tidewater of Virginia into northeastern North Carolina. Um, as far as dates, we have, um, for the third Anglo-Palaton War, it was the third, um, obviously, of three major Palaton Wars. Uh, Powhatans, if anyone is unfamiliar, are the tribes that... Um, um, it was many tribes. It wasn't just one tribe, but it was you give it the name Powhatans in order to make it a little bit easier. But there was a collection of Algonquian tribes that um, um, surrounded the Jamestown settlement in Virginia. Um, tribes really is a misnomer. Uh, it's a European term, but uh, it's commonly used today. But really, what they were um, were communities. They were chiefdoms. They were um, headed by a powerful chief called a Werowance. And this were once, it was not, it, 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 they used councils, but it was not as council-based as some um, other um, nations. It was, um, the, the the word that Europeans used to describe them were kings, which, although is inaccurate, it kind of gives an example of how powerful they were esteemed to be. And um, as Algonquins, they are the southernmost Algonquins. Um, they went all the way down the eastern coast from um hundreds if not thousands of years earlier, further north, um, their neighbors were the Siouxans, um, and Iroquoian peoples in the south. We have um the Tuscarora and Ottaway, on their southern border, which also separated the Pelicans from the southernmost Algonquian units, the uh, North Carolina Algonquins. And in um 1607 is when um Jamestown first began and the first war with the Powhatans started shortly thereafter. Um the second war was from 1622 to 1632. Uh that one was headed by Apachincano. Uh Opechancanough is um in my opinion a, a very stout resistance leader. A lot of people notes such as Sitting Bull and Tecumseh, and and these great great resistance leaders of all these Indian wars of times past, but Opatcankano was one that's not as often spoken um, in discussions like that. So, I wanted him, uh, the man of Opatcankano, to be on the forefront as well. And, and when I wrote it, he was um, very old. By the time of the Third Anglo-Powhatan War, he was in his nineties or 80s but he was very old he was born in the mid 1500s and during his lifetime he saw the first um incursions of Europeans he saw the spanish come in in the six, uh, 1570s um and probably assisted in the local people in destroying the missions as well um he was um, not head chief when um, in the during the first Anglo-Powhatan war, but he was brother to Chief Powhatan, who was, his actual name was Wahun Seneca. And in that war he was something of a war chief and uh, fought against them then. The, by the time his brother died he became the head of all of the Powhatan chiefdoms and in 1622 he staged a massive um, um, strike on all of the Settlements. I mean, that day, um, 350 colonists lost their lives, um, and he just he charged in, and that was quite a shock, if you can imagine. 300 people dying—that was actually a third of the entire Virginian population. All of them had to go back into their central um, 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 towns and leaving the frontier completely. You know, all the houses were burned. um, There was massive starvation. And the Powhatans um um had many of their own losses because as soon as the Virginians had reinforcements then um all the reinforcements came in and um were able to pretty uh pretty much decimate any um Powhatan resistance. But the Powhatans all fought back and it was a ten year war. It was it was like a Virginian Vietnam. Um Eventually, of course, a a peace treaty was signed, but it was a stalemate. It wasn't really a a victory on anyone's part. However, um, the Powhatans were left weakened, and the Virginians kept getting more and more settlers in from um, England so that there was about 10,000 English and only a few thousand Powhatans by the time of the Third Anglo-Powhatan War. That was um, um, very difficult, but Pacano was very old I'm sure he knew his time was running out and it was now or never so he staged an, an, a whole nother a whole nother strike and that's where my um my book comes in he um the strike that day actually killed more settlers than uh the previous one uh four hundred lost their lives and um it was um again but even though it was more than before the um there was Ten thousand English at that point, so it was more of a drop in the bucket so this war was shorter. It was only from sixteen forty four to sixteen forty six It was a, a two about a two and a half year conflict and um you know of course in the end, the palatines were defeated and um were classified as tributary nations. Now, one thing I want to add about this war is because is is it's not just another Indian war. what we see here is once this war was over and all the Palatons were regulated onto um, reservations and forced to become tributary nations, um, that's from a lot of these, these Palatons families that we see that would come South into North Carolina and other communities. You see surnames among, among um, many modern day communities that have origins in the Virginian tribes. Um, So this, was kind of a catalyst that f- was formative to many other communities in the future. Um, so I suppose that's uh pretty significant right. as, as well, you know, and um, opened up the settlement for North Carolina and, and others. Um, the expeditions that I mentioned that went South were caused for the, um, when the treaty was written for them for Virginia to lay claim to all the land in the South uh, basically by right of conquest, and so after that war, just a few years later in the 1650s, that's when the first settlers came down into North Carolina and began interacting with um, the Algonquins and other Iroquoian and Sioux nations um, down there. So it was it changed the entire geopolitical landscape of uh, the Mid-Atlantic region, especially in the South, like in North Carolina along the border.
1: Yes, and I I think that Scott. I think that you know this. This may have been like the first big wave of of assimilation. What do you think about that, Scott? Um, you know, do you feel like, yeah, that probably even here,
2: even here in our communities that that we have down here in Panhandle and South Alabama and and South Southwest Georgia, you find the surnames that, he, that he's talking about, uh, Yeah. If, if people have read uh, Indians of North Florida, we have a, a passing uh, – uh, we touch in passing on the fact that, like, among, among Eastern Creeks here, you have several surnames that originate in the Carolinas, like Gibson and Dees and just Cog. You have a, a bunch of families here that have blood ties, uh, Taylor, uh, just a lot of them that the ancestors of those, the founders of those families before removal, what's called the Tensal community or the Tensal settlement here, were men from the Carolinas, Indian men, mixed blood men, who came in and married, you know, Creek Indian women and founded families that became core families of later Indian <laughs> communities. Tensal evolved into to Porch Bands, you know, the tribal group today. This Porch Band comes from, from Tinsaw, there was a, a part of Creek Nation before removal, a more mixed-blood community, a kind of an offset community. It wasn't a tribal town like a lot of the other, you know, uh, uh, tribal towns that, that you find. It was a kind of a of a different type of community culturally. And those surnames that that you're talking about, uh, just exactly as he said, kind of flowed down. And that's, that's just looking at Portspan. Here in the Panhandle, we have a lot of, families, like I said, the Ox and Dines, the Jacobs, the Scots, that are long, were large families here throughout the Jim Crow era. And it, when you follow it on back, or well, came out of North Carolina from Eastern Sewan groups. We have families from, from uh, Lumbee, families from Sumter County, South Carolina, what's called uh, uh, Sumter Chiro, used, uh, formerly also known as Sumter Turk by some. Um, we also have uh, families that come out of the Catawba, And so, those surnames it's here, this far south right here almost on the Gulf. You know, it's a long, winding path. And when you follow them on back, kind of like the the deep research that, that my cousin Pony Hill did that you find in the, the, the first couple of chapters of our book, Indians in North Florida, it goes back to Virginia, and it goes back to Ginkascan, it goes back to, to tribal groups up, up there, uh, Fort Christiana and stuff like that, to where we're talking, you know, many hundreds of years ago. But these groups that uh exist, they run into these uh difficulties, we'll say, and they reform and again at another point, it may be a generation later, it may be three four generations again, they run into you know real real obstacles to survival, and yet they find they found a way through it and to to come down to where we're at and it really is when you start correlating these populations the Carolinas, Virginia, Florida, Louisiana, you find the same surnames. You find uh, genealogical connections across the board. And as, as we continue to research, we find just more and more and more. I, I'm i glad to hear about the upcoming um, Breaking the House of Pamunkey because I haven't written on it very much or anything, but my own grand grandfather, Ray Kieber, uh, his family goes back to a, to a Pamunkey lady. You had a Pamunkey family that moved down to the Catawba reservation and lived there. The, uh, the Mersch family and, uh, mm-hmm. Rebecca Mersh. I'm a descendant of her through my grandpa Ray Kiva. He, they come down and joined the Catawbas. And then Jamie Brown, he migrated on down here, but the Catawbas would send his, uh, his remittance or they was leasing the reservation at a plat book. And, uh, yeah they were listing his address down here, you know in our community here that they were sending it, and I think it was a uh, Professor Bloom or a few years uh since he contacted us and sent that information to help us in our in our work of documenting the origins of you know families of our community here in in North Florida that you know historically here we had kind of a unique identity to some degree local people, the, the the terms that, you know, outsiders usually use for all of our people wherever we were located, around here they kinda said, you know, those are Dominickers. You know, that was the term used here. If you were up in the Carolinas, it would have been brass ankle, it would have been Turk. If you're in Louisiana it might have been red bone, you know, they got all kind of terms they used to use. But generally our people saw ourselves as Indian people. And if you go through the court cases, you go through the the educational records, you go through the military records, that's what you see. They'd say, I'm I, I don't know, you know, I don't know too much about what you're talking about, Mr. Official, but I, I was told I was Indian, you know. And uh, I'm glad right. to see that research in that House of Pamunke, back in the House of Pamunkey coming up because as, as probably some of our listeners know, the the Virginia tribes are in a flat out struggle to kind of re uh reclaim um some of the status that they've they've lost in, in generations past and and it's been a long fight for some of those tribes in Virginia to the, the very folks that you know met, this, met the settlers that have been trying to, to get acknowledgement from the federal government of, of the status for some of the tribal groups and for others, you know, they they've uh, they probably could have in the past, but at that time it was good how it was. I know Pamunkey and Mattaponi and all them were were uh, you know uh, long time colonial reservations and other communities were kind of off the grid as far as. To the outside world, but I'm glad to see them all resurgent and see the the struggle over the last few generations to to re that that um, most important thing in in across Indian country, which is the relationship your community has with your fellow communities, the state of Virginia, the federal government, you know, whatever the the uh, the authorities that you need to have that relationship with to preserve your community in today's world. I'm glad to see that they're 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 moving ahead with that. Yes, me too.
1: Yes, I think that, that that breaking the house of a monkey is is going to be that original, you know, uh expulsion of of the Native Americans from the east coast into, you know, the interior and the south and uh we we see a great majority after about, you know, the 1630s, 1650s, we see that great push into, you know, the Carolinas and 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 assimilating with other Indians for survival, Um, I I was wondering what the, uh, if you could, for us, Lars, uh, go just mention some of the major family surnames that are associated with these wars and and these chiefs, if they were mixed blood. I don't know. Uh, Elaborate a little bit for us, um, maybe if you could, on any of the mixed blood portion of that community that were being you know, we're, we're suffering from, you know, colonialism and war and
0: disease and all of these things. Well, I'll comment as much as I can. Um, the, um, study that I've done here is mostly a broader history rather than with genealogy. However, I can give you a few examples. Um, one pretty well-known family that we, um, see coming from these Palatons is the Bass family. You know, the Bass family is, um, very wide ranging in many different communities, you know, mixed race communities today. Um, and they have a, um, almost disproportionately large amount of documentation on them, um, confirming them as Indians. They come from the Nansamans tribe that comes from the South side of James river on the Nansamans tributary. And, um, in 16, uh, yeah, 1638, there was a marriage between, um, the daughter of the chief who we only know her english name which was elizabeth and uh john bass um john's brother edward also married an indian woman um a choanoke named um, um elizabeth tucker and um this family um um after the um war ended and they became tributary um, um indians uh, after a while um Many of them stayed behind, of course. Um, perhaps most of them, but the ones that um, left joined other Native communities in the south. So we have, we <laughs> see now sea basses uh, in um,
2: yeah.
0: among the okay. Chileno people today. Mm-hmm. We see them in the Lumbee, um, further west in uh, Melungian communities. Um, you know, it, the list goes on because they're everywhere but now. I'll
2: I'll, I'll confirm uh, part of what you're saying in that, here in our community, uh, I don't know, most people probably don't know my cousin, uh, Pony Hill, but his grandma is Essie Hill, uh, a real revered elder among our communities here. And her mother was named uh, uh, Lily Bass, and their family had come here from Robeson County. And then before that, they lived in Robeson County for a couple of generations, and before that, they came from Virginia. They, they were basses and all. And That's right. So – yeah, just like you said, the name kind of travels. We still have Bass here as part of our community, not as one of the largest families like Scott or something, but we have Basses that are a part of our community. So, perfect example of what you're saying.
0: Exactly. You see well, the same thing with um, what Weavers. You see Nickens and and so many other names like that that have their origins up here from um, from Virginia and Northern North Carolina, and yeah, it goes on. There's there's many
1: yes and and of course, we have our large uh, bass family uh with the red bones who do also go back to to Bassist choice, you know now yep. river and uh so so those people also and of course we are seeing a lot of algonquin uh d n a among the red bones and so we attribute that to to this war that you're writing about and Breaking the House of Pamunkey, you know, because that was really the cresting point, you know, of, of, of the first major push, you know, of the remnants that were left out of there. And so many are our ancestors among our people. And so this is just a, a fabulous writing. I did also want to say that um, Scott has to go at, or at six o'clock I guess it would be six o'clock, is that correct, Scott?
2: Yeah, yeah, six will be good.
1: You've got Shabbat this evening.
2: Yeah, yeah. My my wife is a wonderful lady of Jewish ancestry and we we enjoy having, you know, Shabbat on Friday evening and, you know, uh, fellowship and family time, stuff like that and it's something that I myself didn't grow up with or anything, but I've learned to enjoy through the years that We've been together and it's uh I I really enjoy it. It's uh it's a special time.
1: That's fabulous. And and we do wanna go over you've got um there's couple of new books scheduled already. I mean, you you completed another manuscript and right. uh right and so uh soon after, um You know, we get the – Margo is going to join us in just a few minutes, and she's going to talk to us about her book, Um, her last book, which was called uh, Miles Lassiter, and which is available through backintime.biz. She is also going to – Release a new book with the uh, called Hilltown to st- to Striving, and and it's it, it promises of course it's going to be a fabulous genealogical book because she is a fabulous genealogist. Oh. Uh, on top of that, she ha- is mixed blood Native American and African American, and so she she gets she's got a lot to contribute to uh, the Back in Time collection as far as. We're we're really on the cusp of putting a lot of these families together. I did not realize that um, until speaking with you today, Lars, that the Bass was included in the Nickens, and I think you mentioned the Tuckers, which Scott and I have just we talked for several hours uh, confusingly yesterday. Scott thought that we were having the The radio show yesterday evening, and I do apologize for the confusion, but we got, of course, him and I get on the telephone and it's like, oh my gosh, it's hours go by and we don't even realize it's been that long. <laughs> um, so but we did mention the Tuckers and I, I you might elaborate a little bit on that, both of you, um, quickly and then I'm gonna do an update for the Goins book and we're gonna introduce Margot and we're going to let uh Scott get off the phone so he can enjoy his Shabbat. But um do tell me about the Tuckers. Uh they're uh, they're they're a curious family to me because I see them all around the red bones, but I've never connected them to the red bones. And so, when you're telling me that they were Algonquin, you know, monkey mixture, you know, that that Eastern Tidewater Virginia, because that's where all of our red bone people came from, and I know the Dominickers as well and the Porch Band. Uh, so tell us a little bit about the Tuckers because I know nothing.
0: Well, um, as far as the Tucker I mentioned, she was a Choanoke woman. However, the Tucker is not really normally considered a Choanoke surname. We uh, believe that that was given to her at her baptism. She had an Indian um, language name prior to that. Um, it's primarily, according to what I've seen um, it, 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 during this, the time of this war, um more so, associated with um the nansamon tribe because if you remember um Edward Bass's brother John had married the Nansamond woman and they apparently became a part of the tribe because it's around this family that um we have so many records on that from, in the future. But um yeah Tucker um is oftentimes associated with the uh Nansaman tribe.
1: Fabulous. And uh, Scott on the Tuckers, we were discussing you mentioned the Tuckers, didn't you, yesterday?
2: Yeah, in passing, uh, I don't know a lot on them. It's, you know, you you kind of concentrate on certain families in certain areas, and you're steadily learning and uncovering, uh, you know, new in your research, new things and all, but I myself don't know a lot on them uh, compared to, to, you know, probably some others who do. Uh, some of the names that's been mentioned, uh, not just here in our community but we have a nearby community the moab and the choctaw and some of them have the weavers and such like that reed uh river stuff there are major surnames in that and uh that community that's that's a a really strong indian community over there that uh is just a few miles over the border here in alabama and they you know they have those same surnames too, and certain families that Porch or here among our people or over at, at, at Moa they overlap. You know you'll find a, 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 a somebody that got married and that family came on in, and you know that surname is not a prominent surname, but you'll find it there. Kind of like I'm saying with Bass, to where it's a uh, it's a it's a, a kind of a, a side surname versus you know a core surname you might say of, of the, right. the group. But I don't know a whole lot about the Turners offhand to be able to. To go in depth on them, okay. I'd
1: like to. well, I, I know that
2: our bath one of our
1: grandmothers uh, in Louisiana in the early 1800s was actually referred to in documents, legal documents, as a con- concubine, mm-hmm. and so we are seeing that. I think you mentioned when we first talked, uh, Scott, about. The, the habit of the countrymen was to have more than one wife, and and this was not anything that that was uh, uh you know, considered uh, unusual uh, at the time. It may seem that way to us now, but at the time, they they had several families usually. And I'll elaborate a little bit on that, and also talk to us a little bit about naming patterns. I think. Um, Lars, you mentioned that the the Tucker was probably just a given name. And and we know that that many, 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 many of these people just shared surnames and and could have inherited it matrilineal instead of the the usual way of the white English to inherit paternally. And so just, just elaborate a little bit on the countrymen if you could in Bells of the Creek Nation
2: okay. where
1: you yeah. you don't several wives for one
2: one man or or right. several men right. Well the first thing the first thing we have to keep in mind when we're thinking about that time, we're talking about the Creek Nation before removal, which was in the eighteen thirties. You're talking about a matriarchal society. You're talking about a whole different structure to to the world. And women had a lot more power in that world, and still do in the vestiges of it that you find. And it's not nearly what it was, but in some Creek communities, in some Seminole communities and Miccosukee communities, you find that that structure still there to, to more or less degrees. And uh, the, the, the matriarchal nature of, of those communities gave women power. And so when you hear about an Indian countryman, like let's speak, about Nimrod Doyle since he's a focus of Bells of the Creek Nation as far as uh he kinda of a central point that these stories play out around. He had two Creek wives and uh he had children by several women that I, I know of from the research, but some were more or some were less, you know, a part of his life or important in in the, the playing out of, of events and stuff. Uh for him to have a couple of wives wasn't uncommon. Because it wasn't like in some, you know, thoughts we'd have today about the nature of those kind of relationships. Those women had property of their own. They had political power of their own. They had a different uh, position in society than we really can understand today. Uh, A Creek woman in that time, her clan protected her, and her children were born to her clan not their dad, whoever their dad was, of, of any color, any tribe, or any family, they belonged to their mom's clan. And so those those women, their sisters, their mothers, brothers, in that matriarch society, they stuck together in a way that's hard to understand today. And they helped each other, and their loyalty was to each other. So even though these Creek women would marry uh, an Indian countryman, a non-Indian man who lived in the nation, and and usually subject to the laws of the the communities that they lived in, some of them lifelong, uh, uh, it wasn't that they were in any kind of a way at the mercy of these men usually. They had a lot of pull of their own. And they would marry Indian countrymen as a way of bringing prestige, bringing political connections, bringing resources to their clan and their tribal town. Tribal towns were the central institution of creek life then and even now for traditional people as far as the tribal town was the focus of a community kind of like a in small town america today where you know someone's life revolves around the little town they've lived in they're kin to everybody everybody knows them that's how the tribal town was and is uh in in their tribal towns when they would marry an indian countryman he would bring resources in he'd bring weapons he'd bring trade goods he'd bring ties to the outside. So for an Indian countrymen like Nimrod Doyle, and there were 80, 90 different or, or so different Indian countrymen documented, well-documented, living in Creek Nation. So that's what was documented. So you can probably double that number altogether. And according to archival you know, resources, you find that not only just, say, Indian countrymen, but there were people of African descent and European descent who actually came to live in Creek tribal towns themselves just because it was better for them, Uh, the form of government and the way of life of the people. For some people coming from Europe or people held in slavery, you know, stuff like that, this was a much better life. You had a – it was actually referred to in one text as, you know, this asylum of liberty, they called it. And uh, you find a, a, a respect for the individual that you don't find in colonial settlements of the time to a big degree, where you were, you know, very subject to the classism and stuff that was a hallmark of that time for a lot of them. And there was this zone, there was this frontier where it wasn't really European and it wasn't really Indian, where these communities intermixed, interrelated, you know, had lives, uh, lived in the same context of of the times. That, you know, we, we have a different... Difficult time picturing and understanding today. So for these Creek girls that that I'm talking about, that live their lives, and that we we kind of talk about in depth in, in Bells of the Creek Nation, uh, I, I wanted to preface that that you know it's hard to understand today their lives, but that's what that's why we do the research we do. That's why we tell the stories we tell and stuff, is to give an insight into, you know, for any one of these girls I'm talking about in 1830, they have thousands of descendants today, and that's. Part of the reason I wanted to write this book is that, sure, they they have descendants among full blood Creek folks in Creek Nation, Oklahoma, that I know and have interviewed and stuff, and they have uh, descendants right down the road here who have no idea that they have Creek ancestry. And any single individual you're talking about in 1800 will have many, many, many descendants today across the spectrum: African American, Native American, you know, anybody you want to talk about that that is. You know, in any way connected They have so many descendants today That I wanted this to be really a story of America A story of their their lives then And their descendants today So I follow Nancy and Sarah Who stayed in the East They married brothers of the Hill family And founded the Hill family In a way that descendants moved on down to Florida Sarah, she went on out uh, to, to 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 Texas but they they maintained their ties to Creek Nation, though they were living in Texas for you know years. The Civil War came and went. Her son Sarah uh, Doyle Hill remarried, and uh, her son Samuel Callahan was the Indian Territory representative to the Confederate Congress, and was a decorated you know veteran in combat of the of the Civil War as a as a Confederate Creek soldier. Um, his daughter. Uh, wrote a book, was one of the first books written by uh, uh, a Native American woman, uh, Y. Nima, you know, the name of that book. And so you you see where this family, you know, kind of had uh, different uh, fortunes. The ones that was out in Indian territory kind of rose and fell with the situation there. Meanwhile, the the first cousins, the second cousins down here in the south, had a a, a different experience, living isolated away from a larger Indian population, isolated away from, you know, the kind of life that Sarah and her descendants were living there in Texas and Indian Territory. And as I examined the families, I found it interesting that those lines of descent there, they married non-Indians generationally on down to where you have Samuel Callahan that's like a 30-second blood, something like that, on his blood quantum, you know, and and their descendants didn't intermarry. They, They kind of assimilated Meanwhile, you had Sarah and Natsy's descendants here almost not intermarrying amongst just Indians and keeping to themselves. So even though those folks were part of the, you might say, federal Indian system, they were you know, residents of Indian territory and they were on Creek Nation roles, Dawes' roll, all that, yeah, these folks here, they weren't on any role. But meanwhile, when you look at the marriage patterns and the cultural patterns, you see a conservatism among, among them. Meanwhile, you have families like, you know, there's descendants there in Creek Nation who became, you know, more part of the emerging state of Oklahoma, you know, and I kind of give a example of uh, one of the individuals, George Hill, who was a youngest son of Nancy, who though he was born here, went out there and got his allotment and became, you know, uh, on the Dodge Roll in Creek Nation. So sometimes it went back and forth like that, you know, where the connections work at the live and. We were able to interview, uh, interview, um, uh, uh, elder Grandpa Bill uh, Wiley Sampson, uh, a respected elder in Creek Nation, who had oral histories that were just fantastic about his grandfather, you know, George Hill, and he knew things about it, and it was just such a rich experience to be able to sit with an elder who's that that aged and remembering the, you know, the times in the 30s and 40s in Creek Nation, what life was like back then, which was a pretty rough period for Creek Nation. With the Dawes Act and the, you know Creek Nation being stripped of its ability to govern and care for its people, it was some really good oral history and and stuff that we were able to gather years ago in, in those interviews, me and Pony. And so yeah, this you know that that's what Creek Nation. I mean that's what our uh, Bells of the Creek Nation is about. And I hope folks get something out of it that gives a small picture of of, of what I'm talking about. You know. I really enjoyed the way you
0: um, wrote the book. Um, how, the way you were able to not only as just like a case study, but in order to pick the genealogies, but in order to make a, a fleshed-out, wonderful story of it, you know. And is right. the same kind of story that um, it happens in Indian communities all over the southeast. You know, I've seen, you know, it, it's hard to just look at genealogical data and make a, a lively tale of it, you know. And so I started right. to say that I really appreciated the way you wrote it.
2: Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that, Lars. It, it means a lot because it's these tales of of folks that come before us. You know, uh, we're stirring the ashes of identity, and you know, ashes grow cold when they're not stirred, and the oxygen don't get in there. And just remembering right. generations gone by, remembering elders that came before us of any race. At At first, when I was working on Belzile Creek Nation, I thought, Do I really want to make an Indian countryman? uh, Nimrod Doyle, the kind of the central figure in a way. But then as I looked he fought in the revolutionary war up there, you know, and in the North, he was from Boston. And then he, he was involved in the, uh, St. Clair. I think it was uh general St. Clair's defeat kind of thing up there. And then he came down to, to the South, came down to, to Creek nation and what would later be Alabama and played a, another whole role in another chapter of American history. And I said, you know, this guy was an Indian countryman in a way, which, in some in some aspects, Indian countrymen are a little suspect because they're, you know, they're uh, some of them wasn't the the most hardy uh, of uh, of characters. You know, some sometimes there was double dealings, and even Nimrod Doyle, as I document, was involved in some of those shady dealings that went on at the time. But this is the story of these communities, and these are the type of individuals that bind the history of this land together. And so, you know, whoever you are. This is relative, you know, if this isn't your story, it's probably a lot like whoever your own line of ancestors and stuff were. So I hope that we, in some small way, honor this history of struggle and, you know, that's brought us to where we are now and that, you know, we continue to do that. Oh,
1: I absolutely think this these publishings breaking the house of the monkey and 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 bells of the creek nation and and your new upcoming books uh absolutely are gonna break those barriers that we have been uh chained with for so long because we talk about um occasionally and this is a little bit of an in depth but um uh, Ho, you know Gary Gabe Hart, who was a registered Chickasaw Indian from San Antonio, Texas, and was a close relative of mine and, and, you know, just my lifelong friend or, you know, just like a brother to me. And we lost him this year in 2015. Um, But this is what he wanted. I mean, from the beginning, you know, I I feel like there's all these connections going off with everybody because, you know, he was raised a a white man or, you know, in in a in a white community, and did not find out that he was uh, uh, officially tied to the Chickasaw Nation until he was a grown man. And you know, then this brought back all of this flooding of 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 identity for people, and and he really connected in some regards. And and uh, this is what we need to do. We need to hook back up as a family, and that was his greatest vision for uh me for my work and for our work uh was that these these genealogical ties and um back to one another and rekindling those those bonds and I think these are the books that are going to do it guys and so I'm appreciative to both of you and I know that you must go and enjoy
2: Shabbat this evening and um all the many blessings to you brother Thank you very much. I I, I want to say how much I appreciate what you're doing in with back in time in carrying on the type of work that Professor Sweet did and others before us, but that this area of study, which I feel is not as uh, uh it, not enough attention and focus is paid to it by academia as it should be, and. Folks like you and Mara and the the Back in Time is bridging that gap, and I appreciate the kind of work that Lars is doing and all of the writers in 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 Back in Times uh, community of, of of researchers and writers. This is so important, and I always tell folks this is important because this is where we come from. This is where America is going. If you you know if you're if you happen to live or like Gabe came up in a community that was you know, presented as, you know, this is a white community or, you know, you're a white person. This is actually the past, and it is also the future in the the growing diversity, the growing uh, diverse identities that are the future of this country. And we offer something in our own histories as families and communities that is going to be extremely important to help these other communities who have long kind of lived in the the uh, idea of some type of a unified, you know, culture and identity. Understand, this isn't a weakness. This is a strength to be mixed blood, to come from diverse ancestry, and offer that in the future of this country to help to help bridge those those uh, difficulties that we know arise. And so, the work you're doing, the work Lars is doing, all of these guys very important and very appreciated by me, if, if not everybody else, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, I think so as well, and thank you so much for for joining us again, and and we hope to have you back uh, soon uh, to to talk about your new book and uh, really get that out there. And love to you and the family, and we'll talk again soon.
2: Thank you so much, Stacy.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you, darling. Um, I'm going to give a quick update and then I'm going to introduce Margot Williams who has been waiting so ever so patiently, um, to to talk to us about her new book coming um Hilltown to striving and it it promises to be an absolutely fabulous genealogical ties to all of us and and so I'm excited and I do one day want to get to talk to her about her Williams family who I am suspecting but I'm not positive we would really need to sit down and talk about it and work on it Um, we're writing a Goins book at back in time and Pony Hill has um has submitted a chapter uh on his families which which were basically like the Lumby group of Goinses and the the um sweats and and the basses and all of those people uh that were associated with the creeks and, and the Porch Creek band of, of and and I do wanna also mention that Scott mentioned the moa Choctaw, and so I wanted to elaborate a little bit on this female thing between the Tuckers and the weavers and all of these females that you know these these actually bigger than live females really uh you know we're looking at like mary uh musgrove type uh you know these women were very influential um but however, we have tied uh, mitochondrially. In the Gowens book, we have tied in the weavers of the Moa Choctaw, the Nash family of East Texas and Louisiana um i'm tr- I'm trying to think now, um the Gowens mother. Um, several of them I'll think of the the surnames as as I go but you know women transcend all generational names surnames and so there's when you test one woman you're testing many surnames not just a a paternal Y during DNA and we've talked about all of this but uh, the Goins book is moving right along we tied all of those women together with the Mitchells and um they were a group of gypsies who moved from Brazil Early or late. It was a late arrival to the United States. They did not start arriving until the late eighteen hundreds. Uh King email Mitchell and his wife, who was um Callie Mark she was a Marx. Um, they were brought here by the United States government from Brazil on behalf of their people. And they settled, they arrived in New Orleans they settled, you know, around the, 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 South. And, and we have some, we have so many Mitchells in our family and I know the Creeks do as well. Um, they're mentioned in, in bells of the Creek nation, but in the Goins book, we tie all of these women together with this ancient, female DNA of a gypsy line from ancient Iran and also as well um, India and so uh, this, these people followed um, a certain migrational route, and and we can see that that this is going to be an uh, an exceptional publishing uh, to to show and to demonstrate the diversity of our backgrounds as far as mtDNA goes. Um, but the Goins book we recently and and we had planned to have this book out sooner, and it and it just. It, it just exploded. We've got more than four hundred pictures and genealogies. Um, you know, I would say this page, this book is going to be around the seven hundred page mark, and so that is a tremendous work. And and we recently got um, uh, some of the some of the Goins family around Bogalusa, Louisiana. Contributed a story that was published by the Redbone Heritage Foundation in a booklet pamphlet, but not to be further distributed beyond that uh, conference or that publishing for that conference. And he has, he is going to allow us to publish a picture, a very rare picture of. Little Joseph Gowen, Jr. And he was, um, after the Civil War in Louisiana, we had a lot of our people work for sawmills, what they called woodpeckers. And they would just go out into, Don Marler has written extensively, um, and, and if anybody is interested in that book, uh, the sawmills and, and that. But there was after the Civil War, there was a great struggle between the black uh, slaves, you know, who would work for a very minimal fee. And um, the mixed bloods, of course, fell in. This was basically their jobs, you know, uh, and there was a lot of. Uh, shootouts of the okay corral, as far as the red bones go. I mean, numerous of them, uh, broke out in the sawmills over hiring the black community, and then the white men got in on it too because you know we were kind of with the white men as far as, as um, some of the struggles and the, the fight out, you know, the fights and that. But mm-hmm. little Joseph went into one of these in Louisiana and. He had a wife who was pregnant and he never he got hung maybe a few d a few weeks before the child was born. Um, he had killed a, a sawmill owner and his story was actually featured in a book called Um Pistol Politics Pistols in Politics by Professor Hyde, and um, so if anybody wants to get that book, they can read about little Joseph, but we've got a picture of him and some of his descendants, and he was a relative and or descendant from Dr. Thomas Goings, who was a free man of color on the Natchez trade, and we chased this DNA back to this female DNA from that family back to the uh, these ancient women of Iran and an ancient woman previously of India. And so it's it's a fascinating story. And um, we can't wait to do that. But I'm going to introduce Margo Williams. And she has been patiently waiting. And thank you so much. Margo, we're so excited to hear about your new book. If you could get on the line and 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 introduce yourself and Margot and Margot is, Margo is quite a professional person and she is also joining us along with Lars who is still with us. Um lars and and Margot are going to be working with back in time uh you know on on certain projects and um Lars as an independent researcher and historian and uh, Margot is going to lend her editing skills once again and um so I look forward to working with you guys and welcome Margot um good evening. How are you doing? Margo. Hi, uh, Margo.
3: Yes, are you there? Am Hello.
1: welcome.
3: Oh, good. <laughs> Hi, thank you. It's been yes, a great uh, conversation. Oh, I've been listening.
2: Yeah. Good to meet you.
3: Nice to meet you all. Yeah, nice to meet to speak to you all in person. I know we're we're all um, social media acquaintances, but it's good yep. to be able to speak to <laughs> you in person. Yes.
1: <laughs> it's very good to meet uh to, to have you here this evening, Marco, And and welcome to twenty sixteen and your new yes. book uh just I mean, we're just getting it together a little bit every day. And so it's <laughs> any day now we can get it published and so we're so excited. We have uh a few details to work out as far as sure. as, as our end of things, but It's it's moving right along, and so tell us all about, first, I would like for you to tell us about Miles Lassiter, because that was a a really good book that I know you have um, interviewed with Blog Talk Radio about Miles Lassiter, and it's a really wonderful interview, and I'm going to put a link up for that. Because that was a really good one, but just give us a short a short little detail about um how successful that was, and then talk to us about hilltown to drybe Stry- streby um yes,
3: um miles was my um miles as i as I call the book my research journey to home because I really started with so little information my it's my maternal line, my mother did not have much information because. Her immediate family had become somewhat estranged from the rest of the family, and but even when I got into North Carolina talking to people, I realized that um, there were a lot of, as you say, over time stories get sort of confused, they get left by the wayside, and so when you get into the research, you you really do learn so much more. And as I got into the research, I discovered that this man who was born in around 1777 um, and who through most of the research appeared to be a free man of color um, at the end ended up, it turned out was what I've I've seen someone else call a nominal slave or a slave without master kind of thing. But he, he actually lived with his, his, um, his master, but he was the business manager and helped them acquire a great deal of property. After they were dead, and his wife bought his freedom, his, his for a dollar and twenty cents, I believe it was, um, and that was uh, settled once and for all. He went on to be a successful farmer and became an a Quaker, um, fully admitted to Back Creek Meeting in uh, Randolph County. And when he died in 1850, was the only um, Quaker of color in the state of North Carolina. Wow. And that's the story in a nutshell. Um, the, the, I was, I, I felt very fortunate. That was my first book. Um, you know, I'd done other, um, articles, written other articles, but that was my first book. So, um, Unbeknownst to me, I did not actually submit it. Someone else put it forward to the North Carolina Genealogical Society, and it was awarded um, Best Family History for 2012.
1: That's fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you. fantastic and and i'm curious you know we we don't give a lot of credit and i know paul johnson has written a book on the quakers you know and and their influence yes. on the mixed blood people and and yes. we we really don't um give them enough credit because they Certainly, were a group who was a friend and a, 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 an ally with with our people. And uh, I don't know about breaking the house. Monkey, if you found a lot of significant Quaker influence on the mixed bloods that, or or the Native Americans that that were moved out of that area, D- do you have any comments about that, Miles?
0: Or not 16? during, yeah, not during the. Um not during the wartime. In the wartime, there was internal battles between Puritans and Anglicans in the Virginian government, but the Quakers wouldn't really come into play until afterwards. I see. I see. Um,
1: But yeah, like I say, um, I I think Miles Lasseter pays a lot of attention as well as Paul Mellor's did, uh, Paul Johnson's book, to the Quakers, and and I have recently connected with some Quakers with some of our families as well, and they were called um, friends of something. I, I I I forgot about those notes, but um, what exactly it was, and I'll find out and let you know. But it was a group that had left the Coastal Carolinas around. Um, uh, oh goodness. I'm so sorry. I, I wasn't prepared well, for that. I thought about I can, it in here.
3: I can tell you that, that they played a very big part in, in helping um, people, um, free people of color, mixed ancestry, um, particularly mixed Indian ancestry, move away from the coast and into the Midwest, into Indiana. And Miles' oldest son actually went with a Quaker family from um Randolph County moved to Rush County in Indiana um near the and they created the Carthage community which is fairly well known in, in Quaker um history and um when I looked into he when I looked into the the families that were that came there and settled in that area many of them are the families that you all have been talking about this evening, extended family members from, from this, from Virginia, North Carolina, Eastern North Carolina, and so forth. Um, and you can find just about all of these names, Bass, um, Weaver, um, Hunt. Um, I, I can't even, you know, on and on, Windburn. They're all of these Eastern families um, moved into these areas. Um, with the help of of Quakers who sometimes went back and forth to bring groups out um, to um, Mm -hmm. what they hoped would be greater safety because um, the laws were getting to be just a bit unfriendly uh, beginning in Mm -hmm. the
1: 1830s. Yes, I agree. I agree, and 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 we just uh, some of us uh, I think is have neglected I I I have personally neglected the influence of those of of that of the Quakers you know on our people because um, I, I remembered it was they came from around the Talbot settlement which was right around Bass's choice and all of that area um, mm-hmm. especially. East- uh you know, out there on the that northern neck of virginia uh where where the Pamunkeys would have been and as well as as other tribal people uh we actually come from a little river we owned a little the Perkins family owned a small um island there called Speciuti, uh you know, and so, or excuse me, right on Bohemia River, uh, it was called Udy. Uh, the Udy was the island. But, uh, however, uh, they brought us out and we went into the area around Muscle Shoals on the Cumberland River, just like North Georgia, South Tennessee. It was Tennessee at that time. It was would have been like, or it's just south, uh, southeast of uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee And so right there, you know Where all of those borders changed Significantly over time From the time period that we're speaking about You know, pre-colonial pre-col- you know, time uh, Through present Because, and, and so I think that Even in like books like Paul Johnson's, Paul Miller's You know, it's just you create that hotbed When they just, they kind of moved And were pushed a little ways And then they were moved You know, it was, always seemed that they the whites were and settlers were encroaching on those, and so it was um it was the quakers who who really helped our people move away from those hostile areas uh, as far as we were concerned and and move us inland and get us resettled and those kinds of things and so they lent a great um hand in our assimilation you know and and grouping this uh, you know hey there's people over here in the like. Similar situation of mixed blood Native American uh, groups and families, and so uh, that that's a great and and tell us, Margot, um, tell us about your new book, all about it. It's so wonderful. <laughs> well, that's the new the,
3: the new book stays in North Carolina. Um, you know, there's sort of these. Uh, and a different group that was also very helpful, um, particularly when it came to education, the American Missionary Association. So they had moved into the area um, in North Carolina that the family, Miles family and others lived in and um, in Southwest Randolph County. And, um, they sponsored a young man who was a former slave and who had come to Washington um he had some health problems he had vision problems and he was trying to get help with that and he wanted an education um and he he was a poet he had a natural gift for poetry and so he was selling poetry and political ballads on the streets in in Washington and um I, i'm not exactly sure what prompted him to continue on to New Jersey but he did. I guess he wanted, he heard that someone would help him with the education. And they did. They sponsored him back to Howard University, where he received his teaching certificate from the normal school, went back to New Jersey, and went to the New Brunswick, and ended up at the New Brunswick um, Theological Seminary, which was associated with Rutgers, um, because he'd been turned down by Princeton. Um, they weren't going to take a man of color. And so the, um, he graduated from New Brunswick, and the American Missionary Association offered him an opportunity to go back to North Carolina to the area that he was from, which was in our area in southwestern Reynolds County, and um, in the Uari, what's now the Uari National Forest, and begin a church and a school. And he did. And he was extremely successful um, from just a handful of families, and I do mean a handful, less than a handful of families in the immediate area that he just settled. Um, it, there grew to be over 100 people by 1900, but oddly enough, he had died in 1884 after having started the school, started the church, um, become very active, the community became very active in the congregational community. There was another school nearby that he was also working with, and um, he he caught pneumonia and died, and um, the school went on, which in some ways I consider to be remarkable because being so young, you could see how it could easily have foundered and failed, um, and you would not have been surprised, but instead... It just blossomed. His wife took over. Uh, Another cousin came in. Another minister came in. And it succeeded. And it succeeded really right up until um, in the 1920s when things were changing and the public, it was decided that they were sort of changing the school system in general. And they became what's known as a combined school. The three schools, for children of color, became a combined common school. And then they went under, at that point, they went under the public school system in the late 1920s. But what I found interesting is that by 1920, the entire adult uh, community was 100% literate. The overall literacy, if you take in everybody, children included, was 76%. That was pretty remarkable. I was just reading some statistics just in the last day or two that nationwide in 1920 for um I'm not going to use the more global people of color I'm going to restrict it to what they said in the study um African Americans was only 25% so now, that's pretty amazing that this this place, I, I should add, is in the country. We're not talking about a town. We're not talking about a city. We're not talking about um, a place that is um, in any way sophisticated. We're talking, as it says in the title, that country, which is a phrase that someone else had used in a report, in a church report, um you're down a road, back up in the shadow of a mountain, back up to a little creek. You're not going to find it if you don't go down there. And frankly, if you're standing at the main road and you don't know who and what's down there, you're probably not going to venture down there because that looks a little ominous. You know, you you're not quite sure what you're going to find down that road. Um, and and this community thrived back there. Um, there were um, they were mostly farmers there were sawmills in the area that they could do extra work at um, in colonial times there were salt mines and even some gold mines but they petered out um, th- this was definitely a remote farming community and um, as most articles previously have said it was like Streeby, where's Streeby? what's that? And um, so it's not a place that people knew about. Even in articles written in the 1970s, when someone would find out about it and write an article, they would, they would be quite shocked because it was that remote.
1: Wow. And they supported, they had their own school there and, and supported they had their own each school. other. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, Marvin, um, his his book or his chapter also reflected a a community kind of similar, you know, where they had a very good school and and everyone and church. And so I think that's what we're, it's it's very tribal to me. Um, You know, we've, yeah, it's very tribal. And and we, sometimes we neglect to uh, identify that among white people even or black people that, uh or african American what what you have you um like the red bones you know they had their own schools they of course were not nearly as successful as far as I know uh with their you know with their literacy and with their obvious um sophisticated education uh system but this this is how they helped each other, and this is how they learned and um so and now is this your direct line, Margot? This is all yes, this
3: is all direct family. This these um I'm descended from one of Myles' daughters and um this church was among its founders were um members of that family and her members of her siblings families, uh, along with a family that they intermarried with, also known as Hills. And that's why it was called Hilltown because there were so many hills there and it was definitely tribal in that sense. Um and I'd not analyzed it from that point of view, but that would be an interesting analysis in and of itself. But um yeah. and so it was in those early years, um, it was called Hilltown. And it became freebie in eighteen eighty four when this minister, um, Reverend Walden um who was also who is also considered a a significant nineteenth century poet his poetry appears in many many nineteenth century um african american uh, anthologies and some just general nineteenth century anthologies um his he applied to the government and asked for a post office to be that up right there, and that's how the community then went from being Hilltown to Streeby. He admired um, one of the ministers who had been somewhat of a mentor to him in the congregation, in the American Missionary Association, a congregational minister by the name of I want to say his first name was Roy Streeby, but I uh, might have been, but I'm, I can't remember his first name offhand. But his last name was Streeby. And um, and so they named the community and the church for him. And so then in going through things like um, um, death certificates and World War I, um draft records, it will say that these people, you know, that the individuals were from Striebeck. And so I found that pretty interesting that that wasn't just what we called the church, but it really was a community with a, you know, a, a Almost a town. It had a small general store and and all of that. So, um, but eventually, oh, oh. they weren't able to maintain it. So the post office closed.
1: I see. Yes, that's that's what I thought was that the town kind of went down. And about what period did the town uh, lose its its viability there, uh, Margot?
3: Well, I don't want to say that it lost its viability. The community, community members continued to live in that community on family property right up until um, literally in, in terms of, of what we'll call Hilltown or Screeby, right up until the 1980s. And the last full-time resident died in, um, I believe it was 1980. Uh, that was Arthur Hill. Um, his house is still there. People still attend the church. Um, it does not hold regular services, but rather at this point, they're holding special services for special occasions. Family members still bring their loved ones back to be buried there. I attended a, a funeral there last year of our oldest living, um, oldest living community member who is a direct relative of mine and a direct descendant of Miles. Edmondson, who was 101 when she died last October, um, and they gathered for that um, funeral, and then we gather once a year for a reunion, a family reunion, a church family reunion, um, and and um, revival in August. Every August on the fourth weekend in August, and that's pretty one pretty much gone on for 136 years.
1: That's fabulous. Uh, Lars, is there any communities that are there, uh, the Pamunkey communities there locally where, you know, where you do your research, where your families came from that are still organized in any
0: way, shape, or form, tribally or otherwise? Oh, quite a few, yes. The Pamunkey themselves as uh, I think you're aware now uh, uh, recently or uh, the most recent uh tribe to receive um federal recognition um and uh, of course many of the other palatan um original chiefdoms are still remaining you have oh let's see we have the Nansamans today we have um <clears throat> um the Cheahomines in two tribes the eastern and the western chickahominy and the matapanay um um uh, there's, there's many. Um, you also have in, in North Carolina, where part of the war was fought. We have today the Chowan Oaks, uh, the Roanoke Hatteras Tribe, um, as well as Maharans We have um, Nottoway. There's there's a there's a lot of um, a lot of communities that uh, still um, still identify as Indian.
1: Yes, and and that's, that's remarkable that that uh, this community that Margot has written about is until the 80s that's crazy uh that's fabulous and 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 because you're documenting and and i i know i really this is a tribal thing um there's two requirements that an ethnologist uses to determine uh if a group of people would class would would be classified as a tribe and those two things are did they intermarry and did they migrate and stay together? Okay, and so right there, you know, Margot is what yes. is uh, do you do you know of any uh Native American heritage there? Of course, I I'm not sure yes. if you did or not. Okay, go yes. ahead and tell us about any uh, tribal affiliations this group has. Um I
3: know that there, as well, there seems to be some debate exactly what the Scots background is, but I know that there are Scots there. There were Goans there. There was a very well-known um, um, case in Randolph County, and, and some of those descendants married into these families. We have Waldens. We have um, um, and we have individuals that. Some of the names I've not heard other places, but we have very good reason to believe that um based on their um, their behaviors their their healing practices their food practices and so forth that they they have Native American ancestry um cottons um hills phillips many of these families had groups back up in the areas um, that you're talking about up in, in Eastern North Carolina and the Tron areas and Mm -hmm. on up into, um, into Eastern Virginia. And uh, that, that would be something that would, I would find interesting to pursue perhaps the next time out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I actually had a quick uh, question for you Margo. There's um yes. a bunch of Lassiters that um I've had contact yeah. with that originate yeah. from um the area of uh, northeastern North Carolina and um and they claim um ancestry. Uh, which is another Algonquin okay. nation that neighbors the um Chillin Oaks and um, others. I was just wondering if you had um heard anything about that or been in contact with any of them.
3: I have heard about it, and I'm also um connected with with Charles Lester. we're doing, we' we're, you know connected on facebook um yep, but we yep, haven't yes. talked it we yeah we haven't talked at length. Um and in our Lasseter family in the Lasseters and from Randolph County they do go back into that area and the collective history does take us back to a Robert Lasseter married to a prudence who is reportedly um either there 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 are different um a- answers to that. I'm leaning more towards the idea that she may have been Chono, given where he was living and his relationships with the Chono. Um, Some people feel that she may have actually had roots um, up among the Nanzaman because he was married uh, originally up closer to that area. I think it bears more research before you can come in with a definitive answer. But there is definitely there are definitely connections, and there are definitely connections through the branches, through the various branches as you come down. Yeah. But I have not done a lot of research with that particular aspect at this point.
1: Yeah. 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 Yeah, I I just see it in among I uh, I I don't know either one. I think both of you are friends with Marvin.
2: Oh yeah. Yes,
0: absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Good news <night. laughs>
1: because I think Miles or Lars that you just did an interview recently. Tell us about that for your your new book and and your 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 research on. You did a a. a and your a video, video your documentary. A, Oh yes, yes, that's please tell us about that,
2: oh that
0: well, I'll ahead I was like, <laughs> what is she talking about? um yes, um, <laughs> that is actually um um a documentary that's being um filmed actually in the final stages of being edited right now um being done by um choanoke uh, councilman um um Doug Patterson, so that's actually a film um you know of course, about the Cholan Oaks. It's about the history of them um from the ancient times to the present day. Um, so that's what that was. That was part of a time I was invited by the show nation to come out to North Carolina and we gave a, um, um, some, uh, history talks at a cultural event they were having.
3: And he did interview Marvin yeah. for that. Or someone interviewed Marvin for that.
0: Yeah, I believe Marvin yeah, was, I, uh, I, was also part of that documentary. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I believe so too as well. And, um, but on the uh, I don't think,
3: uh, excuse me, Stacey, I don't think we've mentioned we should give full name Marvin Jones. Marvin T. Jones is who we're talking about, who had a piece in yeah. Carolina Genesis.
1: Yes. <laughs> Yes, Marvin Jones and he has um been here on Vlog Talk with us a few uh, one time I believe and he did a fabulous interview um concerning his, his research with the Choanoke and and the Challenge group and um Miles or excuse me Lars, I keep calling you Miles and I do apologize for that, <laughs> I, wrong that. <laughs> I I apologize so, Lars, excuse me. Uh, Tell me I've, now. I've lost my place. I was going to ask you a question. Oh, about the Nottaway. You mentioned the Nottaway, and um, this is a group that always uh, intrigues me for several reasons. Um, number one, because my one of my one of the well, the progenating forefather, or so he's been called, of the people known as Redbone, was a man on. Who came out of Fort Blackmore in uh, the early 1700s? Who was obviously of African or North African descent, like a Moor or a Berber type mm-hmm. of ancestry, and, and he was a trader. He's mentioned several times in the George Washington Papers as a trader among the Raw, the Nottaway. And the Cherokee, but but it says they called them Lenape, and and so I believe it was an older version of the same people who became known as the Cherokee. I, I believe the Lenape are the. Uh, but anyway, um, when I was a young girl, um, my mother and father invested money in a plantation home uh, that was called Nottaway, hmm. and so as a young girl, I was went to this plantation home they were renovating you know and they were part of an investment group it wasn't like a personal home or anything like that but um my mother was from Illinois but she had a great attraction to the south and and the southern lifestyle and and antebellum period and so anyways they bought this home and so There was a man that came and visited the place, and he was like the grandson. He was a very elderly man of the slaves that were brought there who were not away Indians to build the original plantation home. And this man had brought these mixed-blood Indians, but they were they named the plantation home for those Indians. And so this is still, it's still a home in Louisiana that you can, it's a bed and breakfast now. Um, but tell me uh, about any of the ties uh, or any details you might know about the Nautilus.
0: Well, honestly, very few. Um, the Nottoway, from my scope of study is mostly with Algonquins and also with, you know, the, the Virginian war. And, um, Um, The Nottoway seem not to have been involved in the um, Third anglo Powhatan War, at least not in any significant way. Um, They would appear until later. I find it interesting that that's in Louisiana, though, um, because, of course, the Nottoway are from, you know, Tidewater, Virginia, um, around the fall line, too. So I I don't know. It's very interesting that we have Nottoway Indians, uh, as you say, that are all the way uh, down in Louisiana.
2: Yes.
1: I I believe that there was a – Great, there was a portion of the Nottoways that were uh, intermixed with uh, with the slave element to create uh, a hybrid type slave in some generations, and sadly they did do that. And there was laws enacted uh, later to stop plantation owners from doing such. Um, As well, they mixed their female. Uh, white female indentured servants with uh, men other than their, you know, maybe forcibly, I I don't know. I'm not, I'm just saying that it happened. And, um, but by the time they, they enacted um, laws that would help prevent, you know, this, they had already created thousands of generations of, of people like me and you and Margo and, and, um, Uh, Scott, you know, and our groups. uh, Well, I don't know. Do you identify with any mixed blood uh, group there, Lars?
0: Well, yeah, my, my ancestry is primarily through the basses. So, um, my, my line went, um, well, um, we always, my, my family identified partially as Indian. We have the stories of course that would have been passed down that, like, like I'm sure, you know, the same way. And, um, you know, I researched them and found, um, you know, he was part of, uh, appears to be of a Melungeon community in Tennessee before going up to Illinois. And then if you look at a biography of him at the time, you know, he's still um he was he was he was still listed in the biography as being part Indian. You know, and then you mm-hmm. look further or you follow that breadcrumb trail further and further and then you find him in um um in, in Bertie Hertford counties in um um North Carolina, like around the Chelin Oaks and then you see um, you know, of course in the Nansama nation. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, correct. Well, I'm so looking forward to to breaking the house of a monkey and 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 getting that book and out. And of course, Margo Williams, we we absolutely expect a smash hit again um, <laughs> with your new book because it's just fabulous. We're uh, I'm I'm really excited about the Hill family, and I would like one day to speak with you at length about the Williams family. I I know that would have been Oh, I'd
3: like to do that too. That would
1: be wonderful. I'd
3: love to talk about that with you.
1: Because, because, honey, we have hooked up exactly 100%, 37 markers with Osceola's descendants. And we were Sweat, we were Williams, and we were Powells, and we were Goins, And we were Warwick, and we were one genetic distance from the Richard Perkins line at Specialty 1650, um, you know, just outside of of, um, Baltimore, Maryland, you know, just over there on the northern neck of Virginia. And um, wouldn't it be just fantastic to um, uh, hook our Williams up together? Uh, Because, of course, some of these men ended up being, uh, and this is the Goins book, some of these men ended up being people like Seminole colored troops in Fort Bratton on the border of New Mexico, or on the border of Mexico, um, who left the Creek Nation and uh, crossed the Rio Grande. And I talk about those in Carolina Genesis, but um, my great-grandfather was a Goins, and he matched these Williams. And he was a Buffalo soldier at Fort Brackett, Texas. He fought with um, Bullis, you know, the Indian fighter. And yeah. killed off all the Dutchies and Comanches out there in West Texas. But uh, that's, that's the Goins book. But it would just be – and that is your maiden name, correct? Mine? Yes. Williams no, no. is your no, maiden no. name. No, no, no. Oh, yes, William is my maiden name. Yes, mm-hmm. Yes, Yes. that's what I thought. Mm -hmm. That's what I thought. My book name, uh huh. Mm -hmm. Fabulous! I'm so glad you get it done. Go ahead, Lars. I apologize.
0: Oh no, I'm 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 good. I didn't have anything.
1: Oh, okay, good. Well, listen, you guys, um, it's getting close to time. I'm going to let Marco um, give us any last words or thoughts that you might have, and then Lars, if you will do the same, and okay. um, we'll okay. conclude for today. And I, I want to thank you all uh, both for being here, and I've enjoyed so thank much your you. conversation. Yeah, you. I, I think I um, learned so much from these, I, and
3: I think that's so terribly important because as we have seen with these and other books of this of this kind there is so much that has been misrepresented or simply not represented of our history um in in the americas that um i think it's incredibly important uh and i find it just very exhilarating that all of these authors are doing this work i'm, I'm really happy to to be able to count myself among them, and um, I'm, I'm just thrilled to, to see the kind of work that's coming out, and I'm dying to see your book, Lars.
1: So oh, thank I'm you. You as well.
3: Bated breath. So um, <laughs> I really am. So um, um, that, that's just it. I mean, all of them. I already have my my Bell's book, <laughs> so, and I've already started reading it. So, yeah, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan. Great. And thank I'll you very much for ha- for having me. And and I yes. hope that people will find the this freebie book interesting. Um um my section is not told as a story, my genealogy section is not told as a story. Um uh, I think the story section is interesting, but my I, I do have uh four generation genealogies of both the Lassiters and the Hills, um, who did intermarry and I think very much um could be called a tribe. Um, a tribal group, certainly clan, two clans, um, and yeah. um, I think, I hope many people will find that useful in their own research.
1: Over to you, Laura. Yes, Laura, tell us. Thank
0: you, Margo. Okay, thank you so much, Margot. It's uh, been a big honor to be on the show here. Thank you to um, Scott, Margo, and yourself. Um, um, uh, yes, my book... Um, well hopefully i find it, hope everyone who wants to read it will find it interesting an uh, informative a lively story it's um the, really the the first book that's ever been written on the third anglo Peloton war um and it's um it um there's, there's a lot packed into it we have the the battles that went on the um i try to see things through the native eyes as um as much as i can i um you know the, so much happened um following the war as far as the formation of mixed race communities, that um I think that this is a great kind of origin story for many of those communities. So um anyone who is interested in um you know the origins of many mixed race communities and in um you know and just even in just general colonial period um warfare or um the, the Powhatan tribes, this is a kind of an untold story now that, that um hopefully my hope anyway is that it's really being going to be coming to the surface. So, um, thank you again. Um, I hope, um, anyone listening will, um, find any of our stuff, um, um, worth looking into.
1: I think so as well. And thank you both for being here and, and we do have our work all of us cut out for us in the future with back in time. Uh we're going to work our best to um to work these books with genealogical information and historical information on the remnant tribal groups of of the East Coast who who were pushed and pushed and assimilated into other tribes and Uh, ended up this is where we're at and uh, now with DNA um, I I have become I didn't understand DNA but I have learned what I mean it's been a self-taught science and it changes every day so you have to keep abreast of those things and um, I've been fortunate to uh, be able to hook up my family and my 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 identity together, this is this is something that I have strived for, I think, all of my life. And so it's been, it's turned out to be a perfect thing and we're all together for a reason because we came together for a greater good and that's our people. And so I'm so glad to count all of you as, as my people, you know. And, um, and we're going to reconstruct these people's lives so that we can give a more detailed view of what life really was like for them and what their their society and their clan believed in. And again, thank you both, and, and I hope to have thank you Thank you, Stacey. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, thank, thank you so Lars. much. Happy New Year. Happy, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to
0: all of you. Yes, sir.